Fortnite. A lot of you love it. Many of you in here probably hate it. Some of you might not have a clue what I'm talking about. If that's you, it's time for you to crawl out from underneath that rock of yours. Ask a friend. Apparently, though, uh, nothing would stop Anton Williams, a teenager in North Carolina, from playing it. Not even a tornado. Seriously. So this past April, Williams is at home. He's playing the video game when all of a sudden he hears a loud noise outside. Not wanting to take his focus off the game, though, because Fortnite is life, he kept playing. Eventually, though, Tornado Sirens catches attention. He decides it's probably a good idea to start looking out the window, and as he does, he sees his neighbor's roof being ripped off. Now, a normal person in this situation would go take cover, right? What does he do? He keeps playing. He hesitates, but he keeps playing. He's got to win, right? I mean, the struggle is real. The problem is things get worse. Power lines start to fall on his house. Siding on his house starts ripping off. It's finally bad enough that he thinks it's a good idea for his sister and his nephew to go take cover in the bathroom. What does he do? Keeps playing. A tornado's literally ripping through his neighborhood, but Anton Williams hesitates to take shelter because he wants to finish playing a video game. Now get this, he's, he's doing an interview at the news station, I, this makes me laugh, uh, after all this happened. So he's, he's talking to a reporter, and he tells the reporter that he didn't want to stop because he was in, quote, Fortnite survival mode. How about going into actual survival mode, bro? Fortunately for Williams and his family, everyone was okay. Why am I telling you this story? Because I think as ridiculous as hesitating to take shelter from a tornado as it hits your house, as ridiculous as that is to finish playing a game of Fortnite, I think we all have a little of Anton Williams in us. Hang with me. Meaning, by that, we all have times in our lives where we're hesitant, where we're reluctant to do things that we know that we should do because we have other things that we'd prefer to do instead, other priorities, other things we'd rather be doing. Jesus' followers, his disciples, they can relate. If you've been following with us through our sermon series this semester, whether in person or online on our podcast, Shameless Plug, Veritas Mizzou, uh, you know early in Acts, that Jesus commands his disciples, these followers, to go out. And he says to them, he says, take the good news of the gospel. Take the good news of Jesus to your fellow Jews in Jerusalem. But don't stop there. Go be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so far, if you've been with us in Acts, through the first nine chapters, Jesus' disciples, they've done a great job. They've willingly obeyed the first part of this command. We've seen their Boldness. We've seen their faithfulness and their commitment in telling other Jews about Jesus. Sometimes at the cost of their own comfort, their own safety, and in some, even their own lives. But the disciples, they were hesitant. Peter, in particular, with the second part of Jesus' command to go outside of Jerusalem. See, it wasn't easy for the early church. It wasn't easy for early church insiders to include outsiders. That part of things didn't come naturally for them. But if Jesus told his disciples, his closest friends, to go out to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, to welcome those who were on the outside, to bring them in on the inside, 
why were Peter and the disciples, why were they so hesitant? The passage that we're looking at tonight, it answers that question. And it marks a significant turning point in the early Christian church's history. What was that turning point? What can we learn from it? That's what I hope to answer tonight. We're going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 10, verse 1. It's the longest narrative in Acts, and so we're just going to read pieces here and there, but it's still going to be a lot, so buckle up. Acts 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Now, at the risk of you guys telling me that I'm humble bragging, uh, I actually had a chance to visit Caesarea. It's in Israel a couple years ago. This is what it looks like now, I think. Yes, that's what it looks like now. But this is what it looks like actually in ancient, ancient times. This is a, a reconstruction of what it would have looked like. Caesarea was a, a city. It was a city built by Herod the Great on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, like I said, in Israel. But it wasn't just any old city. It functioned as the seat of the Roman government of Judea, and it was the headquarters for the Roman forces there. And so in verse 1, that's why we see that a man named Cornelius was stationed there. Who's Cornelius? The first thing that Luke, the author of Acts, tells us about Cornelius is that he's a centurion, meaning he's a commander of the Roman army. And centurions in particular, they formed the backbone of the Roman army. They were incredibly important, incredibly strategic. And because of that, they were paid really well, sometimes as much as five times more than the average ordinary soldier. And so it's likely that, that Cornelius in particular was socially prominent and wealthy, at least relatively speaking. But Cornelius wasn't a typical pagan centurion in the Roman army because we're told something else about him. Luke tells us that he's a God-fearer. Now, now Cornelius is a Gentile, right? Gentile just means he's not a Jew. But interestingly, he's a a Gentile that that worships Israel's God, even though he hadn't fully converted to Judaism. You see, he wasn't circumcised. He didn't follow Jewish dietary customs. But he was a Gentile that worshiped Israel's God. And even though he was a Gentile that worshiped at the local Jewish synagogue, he never would have been invited to eat in the home of a Jew. He was a Gentile. Nor would a Jew have eaten in his. You see, Cornelius, for all his piety, for all his religious worship, he was still considered as an outsider by Jews. Let's pick up in verse 3. One day at about 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. Cornelius has a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who's called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. So God gives Cornelius a vision. He gives him an angel telling him to send men to Joppa to a house of a guy named Simon to bring back a guy, Jesus' disciple named Peter. 
Now, just a little bit about Peter. Peter, if you remember, Peter's one of Jesus' closest disciples, so much so that if you remember, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, one time Jesus looked at Peter and he said, Peter, on this rock, on you, Peter, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So that's, that's who Cornelius is told by this angel in this vision to send for. And while Cornelius' men are on their way to Joppa, which is about 30 miles away from Caesarea, Peter, we're told, we're not reading this, but we're told he's up on the roof praying. And while he's praying, he has his own vision from God. This vision, though, it's much different. It's, it's, it's strange. You see, in it, Peter sees heaven opened, and he sees what looks like a large sheet being lowered down from its four corners. And in this sheet, I know it's weird, in this sheet are animals and reptiles and birds. Kind of bizarre. Pick up in verse 13. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. See, Peter's confused. Why? Why is he confused? Well, God's command to kill and eat these animals, it didn't make any sense to Peter because they would have violated Jewish food laws. There's a, there's a backstory here. In the Old Testament, God told his people, Israel, the, the, the Jews, that, that they were to be a nation unlike any other. You see, Israel was to be set apart in every aspect of its life, not only in its commitment to serve God and, and how they worshiped God, but even in the way, even in the things that they did, like the food that they eat. You see, some foods were clean, and so Israel, the Jews, they were allowed to eat them. They were acceptable to God. But other foods, God said, were unclean and therefore couldn't be eaten. Now, I get that this sounds super weird to us. It seems antiquated, outdated. But, but God gave Israel these food laws for a purpose. You see, they were to teach his people that they were to be different than these surrounding pagan nations. That every area of their life was to be completely devoted to God. Now, fast forward to the first century when we're in Acts. You see, by then, these food laws, they'd become completely distorted. Jewish religious, 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 religious leaders twisted them. They twisted God's commands in the Old Testament and applied what he said to not just food, but to people. Meaning Jews were required by their religious leaders to keep themselves totally separate, not from just certain foods, but certain people, and in particular, Gentiles. Non-Jews. And so Peter, no doubt, in this vision has the Old Testament background in mind. And so when he hears God's command to kill these animals that would have necessarily included unclean ones, he probably thinks that God's testing him. And remember, Peter's messed up before, right? I mean, if you know anything about Peter, you know that, that Peter doesn't always get things right. I think about right before Jesus is arrested. He's praying in a garden before he's crucified. What, what, is, what does Jesus say to Peter? He tells Peter that, that he's going to deny him three times. And Peter looks at Jesus and he says, never, not me, no way. I'll die before I deny you, Jesus. And what happens? Peter denies Jesus three times just as he said he would. You see, you, you have an experience like that, and it's probably hard to forget. 
Peter doesn't want to mess up again. And so when God commands him to eat, he refuses. Surely not. See, God, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. I would never do something like that. Except by saying this, it's clear that Peter's actually forgotten what Jesus has already told him. Go back to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. Pick up in verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but it goes into their stomach and then out of the body. And saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And so in other words, back in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus had already made clear, especially to Peter and the disciples, that Jewish food laws were no longer valid. They were obsolete. Food isn't what defiles a person's relationship with God. It's not what goes inside that defiles. Rather, it's what comes out of our hearts, Jesus said, that defiles us. And so that's why we see God respond to Peter's refusal in Acts 10 like this. Verse 15, the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure, Peter, that God has made clean. And to make his point abundantly clear, God gives Peter this exact same vision three times in a row. Kill and eat, kill and eat, kill Peter and eat. And Peter just doesn't get it. He doesn't get what God is trying to tell him. Now, let me just say as a quick aside, if you sometimes find yourself slow to understand, if you sometimes find yourself slow to respond to what God is doing in your life, you're not alone. You're not alone. Peter, who spent three years of his life with Jesus, he still didn't always understand. He didn't always get it. See, if there's hope for Peter, there's hope for us, right? Back to the story. While Peter's left wondering what the heck this bizarre vision means, it's even more confusing for Peter because Cornelius' men finally arrive to Simon's house. They start shouting, is, is a guy named Peter here? Peter hears this and he's like, what the heck are these dudes at my house yelling my name for? God's spirit assures him that they've come at, their, at his command and that he needs to get up and go down and talk to the men. And there they recount for him why they're there. An angel had appeared to Cornelius and said to send for Peter and that Peter apparently had a message that the Gentiles waiting back in Caesarea had to hear. Pick up in verse 23. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. 
But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. I asked then why you sent for me. So by the time Peter gets back to Cornelius' house, people have gathered, right? And, and I want us to imagine for a second that, that we're in that situation, right? You, so, so imagine, you've interrupted your busy schedule to come listen to what this guy Peter has to say. And the reason you've come is because your highly respected friend, this centurion named Cornelius, your family member, he's told you that this guy Peter is coming and that he has something special to say from God. So you've interrupted your day, you're there, you're gathered, you're eager, you're excited. What will Peter say? And when Peter speaks, he says, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. Now basically, that's the sum equivalent of, of Peter saying, if it were up to me, I wouldn't be here right now. I'm a, I'm a Jew. Jews don't associate with Gentiles. We don't visit with them. We don't spend time with you. After all, that's God's law. That's what it said. And he goes on to say, well, until recently, I, I even thought Gentiles were impure and unclean. God showed me that wasn't right, but I still don't really know why I'm here. Could you please tell me? See, Peter doesn't get it. He doesn't Get it. Now, step back for a second. Let's, let's zoom out for a little bit. And I want us to think about the irony of everything that's going on in this story. Think about, again, the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is risen from the dead. He tells his disciples to meet him on a mountain. And so he goes and he meets them there and he's teaching them and speaking with them. And he gives them a command and he says to them, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've heard this referred to as the Great Commission. And then in the book of Acts, the very beginning, we looked at this several weeks ago, Jesus tells these same disciples right before he ascends to heaven, right before he leaves them, that they are to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, that they are to share the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus with everybody that can hear and yet when Peter has the, very, the chance to do the very thing that Jesus has commanded him on several occasions, what does he do? He hesitates. See, Jesus wants the gospel to reach the ends of the earth. But Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, he's standing in a room full of Gentiles, people that represent the ends of the earth, that represent what Jesus is commanding them to do. He's standing before them in what? He's reluctant. Jews don't do this. Jews don't hang out here. What does Cornelius do, right? You're the guy that brought this guy here. What do you, what do you, how do you respond in that moment? Well, thank goodness he responds with patience and grace, and, and we're not looking at it, but he recounts for Peter the events that led up to everything that has happened. And he speaks to Peter with grace, and he speaks to Peter with kindness and humility. And he tells Peter again how... He had had a vision from God, how God had clearly been the one to orchestrate everything that had happened. And he ends this recollection with Peter by saying that he and his family and everyone that had gathered there that day in the presence of God was ready to listen to everything that the Lord had commanded Peter to say. 
Finally, after all of this, a switch flips. A light bulb comes on for Peter. He finally gets it. Verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You see, Peter finally understands what God has been trying to show him all along. God doesn't play favorites when it comes to who he saves. He doesn't show partiality. See, it took God bringing Peter face to face with a Roman soldier and his friends to finally feel the force of the gospel. God wanted to make it abundantly clear. The gospel is good news for all people. God is eager God is a God who is eager to save without reservation. Outsiders become insiders because of the forgiveness and acceptance that everyone has in Jesus. Peter finally got it, but not everyone did because word starts spreading. Word starts spreading. Word gets out that Peter's hanging out with, that he's preaching to, that he's baptizing Gentiles. And what happens? His fellow Jews in Jerusalem, they start criticizing him. How could you do that? What are you thinking? Why on earth, Peter, are you doing that? See, Peter wasn't the only hesitant one. So Peter has to recount for these guys everything that had happened to them, the whole story, how he got to Cornelius' house and how it all transpired. And he ends his explanation by saying this, verse 17, Acts 11 So if God gave them the same gift he gave to us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Who was Peter to stand in the way of God's mission to reach the ends of the earth? Next verse. When they heard this, they had no further objections. Good. And praised God saying, so then, Even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. See, what once caused reluctance, what once caused hesitation, bringing outsiders in, it now gave these Jewish believers reason to praise, reason to praise God. What what can we learn from this story? What can we learn from the story of Peter and Cornelius? Quickly, three things. First, we learn that the gospel transcends ethnic and social boundaries. See, it's interesting that this story comes on the heels of Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. If you were here last week, you heard Austin talk about the radical conversion, uh, conversion of a guy named Saul, who, who we know as Paul. And both Saul and Cornelius' conversions, they, they, they illustrate what Peter needed to learn, that God doesn't show favoritism. You see, Saul was a Jew. Cornelius was a Gentile. Saul was a scholar. Cornelius was a soldier. From a religious standpoint, Saul was a fundamentalist. Cornelius was a seeker. Both, though, were converted on the basis of God's grace. Both were baptized and welcomed into the family of God on equal terms. God doesn't show favoritism. Do you? Do we? See, God's heart is for everyone to know and love him. And if that's true, and I believe that it is, then we have to take an honest look at ourselves 
and ask if the same is true for us. Do we only like people like us? Do we only like people that look like us, that think like us, that act like us, that like the same things that we do? Maybe you're involved in a small group here. Think about your small group. Does it bother you when people come into your group that are different than you? Do you tend to avoid the people that seem kind of socially awkward to you? Do you wish that person that's kind of difficult relationally, that has a really messy background, do you sometimes just wish they weren't there? If you're honest with yourself. Same with Veritas, Tuesday nights. You know, do we spend time actively praying that students from other races, that students from other cultures would come to this meeting, that they would come to Veritas, that they would get involved? Do you spend time praying that students with a different skin color than your own, do you pray that they were here? Different politics, people with different politics, people with different social agendas, people from campus organizations that you completely disagree with. Do you wish those people were here learning about Jesus, learning about understanding who Jesus is, what relevance he has to their life, why that all matters? Do you want people different than you to know and love Jesus? Or would it just be easier? Would it just be less messy? Would it just be more comfortable if we could just have the people that are like us here and everyone else stay away. You see, if the God that created us in his image doesn't show favoritism, who are we to stand in his way? Second, God's work in our lives, uh, we learn, is often a process. Years ago, I met a, a fraternity guy um, in a, a Greek small group that I was, I was leading, a part of leading he grew up going to church, uh, but he didn't care much about it. Um, in fact, he didn't really want to be there. Uh, his parents ended up getting a divorce, right? And um, he grew angry, angry at God, angry at his friends, his family. He was just angry. And so like many teenagers, he didn't know what to do, and so he started partying, partying and he did so a lot. God was increasingly out of the picture. Life seemed pretty good for the most part, and then he got a phone call his senior year that nobody ever wants to get. His girlfriend had been killed in a car accident. As you can imagine, he was devastated. Not long after the accident, he came to Mizzou on a, a, for a summer welcome. His summer welcome leader uh, just so happened to be a Veritas leader. And, and for whatever reason, that guy in that moment decided, I need to share about what's happened this past year, my senior year with, with my girlfriend. And, and, and the student noticed something different about how the summer welcome leader responded to him. The care, the empathy, the questions. You see, he actually seemed to care. So the leader starts talking to him about Jesus starts talking to him about the crossing, starts talking to him about Veritas. The guy kind of acts like he's interested, said he'll check it out when he gets here in the fall, but he didn't. Instead, he dove headfirst into alcohol and sex, trying to numb himself from the pain, and he did it his entire first year in college until he realized one day that it wasn't working. It was making him far more miserable. It was ruining his life. One day, he, he, he's walking around on campus, and he runs into this summer welcome leader that he hasn't seen in over a year and a half. 
Leader remembers him, asks, hey, how, how's everything? Like, the last time we talked, things were pretty bad. He says, yeah, you know what? Things have gotten worse. He stops everything he's doing. He has a conversation with him for like an hour or so. Starts talking to him. Starts talking about Veritas again. He knew the guy was in a fraternity. He said, hey, I, I know some guys that lead a, a Greek small group, and actually, it's tonight. You should go. And so I get a, a text from a guy. Hey, I'm coming to your small group. Is that okay? Oh, uh, yeah? Here's where we are. We'll see you there, right? And he comes. And I made other staff members go and talk to him. And he gets connected. And eventually, he becomes a Christian. His life wasn't perfect, but it never looked the same. See, from the outside looking in, nobody would have had a clue that God was at work in this guy's life. Nobody would have had a clue looking at this guy's life, that God was doing something, that God was at work, but he was. Just like he was at work in Peter's life, just like he was at work in Cornelius' life, just like he was at work in Cornelius' family's life and his friend's life, just like he's at work in your life, just like he's at work in the people's lives around us. See, don't presume to know more about what God is doing to draw other people to himself than he himself does. God always works in his own timing. He softens hearts, he softens hearts in his own ways through his own plan. Everyone here, I, I don't care how long you've been a Christian, if you're a Christian, everyone here is in process. Jesus is okay with that. See, sometimes I think as Christians, we have to act like we've got it all together, right? Maybe you felt that. Maybe you felt the pressure. I've got I've to act like I'm perfect because I'm a Christian, and that's apparently what Christians do. No, that's, that's BS, right? Jesus is okay with us being in process. He's not naive. He knows that there are things in our lives that we're ashamed of. Jesus knows that there are things in our life that we're doing right now that we're hiding from other people. Jesus knows that we're doing things that aren't pleasing to him. You see, but the good news, the best news about Jesus is that he's compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. And he's committed to us despite our flaws. And he causes growth in our lives in his own timing. See, God's work in our lives, it's often a process. As the music team comes up, third, we're hesitant, but God is eager to save. God is eager to save. You see, Peter was hesitant to bring outsiders inside. Jewish believers finally criticized him when he finally did. Unless we cast the first stone, we too are hesitant. We're reluctant to reach out to others we're often hesitant to invite someone new, to risk an uncomfortable conversation about Jesus. Some of us would rather keep insiders inside and outsiders outside, but you see, God's heart is to see outsiders becoming insiders. God is eager to save. He's eager to reach the nations, all people, and he's willing to go through a remarkable amount of trouble a remarkable amount of trouble to get the gospel to those that he longs to be known and loved by. And so what we learned tonight, what we've been learning as we've been looking at the book of Acts is that nobody is unreachable. Nobody. 
Nobody's gone too far. You haven't messed up too much. Your life isn't too messy. Nobody's made too many mistakes to have their life completely and forever changed by Jesus. You see, there is no limit to God's power. There is no stopping what God has planned. God is eager to save. Amen. Amen.